talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Hello, and welcome back to the Worst Wing Podcast, where we discuss Aaron Sorkin's seminal liberal drama of the West Wing, and ooh boy, do we have a doozy for you this week. Uh, I am Dave. And I'm Stu. And we're here to discuss the sixth episode, no, sorry, fifth episode, we are now on, uh, The Crackpots and These Women. These women! Uh, <laughs> these women! Who be shopping! <laughs> um, so let's just jump right into describing what this episode is about. Uh, actually, I would like Leo to do the honors as he pitches this episode's gimmick. Wouldn't this time be better spent plotting a war against a country that can't possibly defend itself against us? We can do that later, Toby. Right now I'm talking about President Andrew Jackson. Actually, right now you're talking about a big block of cheese. And Sam goes on my list. What about Toby? I'm unpredictable. Jackson wanted the White House to belong to the people. So from time to time, he opened his doors to those who wished an audience. And then he locked the doors behind him and made them eat two tons of cheese. It is in that spirit. Hang on. Mandy doesn't go on the list? Mandy's new. So it's just me alone on the list? Yes. It is in the spirit of Andrew Jackson that I, from time to time, ask senior staff to have face-to-face meetings with those people representing organizations who have a difficult time getting our attention. So... We, ha- we have our setup. The staff will be taking meetings from randos throughout the day, uh, and they're meetings that they would rather not be taking because they view these people as, as the title says, crackpots. Uh, so we jump right in with this uh, opening scene with the president playing basketball against the staff. Uh, and it's clearly just meant to be kind of a light comedy thing. They don't really discuss anything political. Uh, the president cheats by getting what is meant to be a like Final Four uh, college <laughs> player to sub in to his team, which is a nice, funny little moment. He brings in a ringer, like, yeah. for real. <laughs> it's, it's a very weird and tonal shift because, A, it's out of the White House, which is bizarre for this show. I mean, I know they're technically still on the White House, like, like the grounds, yeah. grounds, but they're outside. And also they're all in athletic gear and sweating, which is the first time we've seen that happen. Well, and now uh, that other you, than now that you, CJ working out in the pilot. Well, I was going to say, now that you mention it, like they also, um, they have a secret service detail around. Yes. Them? Yeah. They definitely, there's a few guys there, but so like if they're, do, you can see the white house in the background. I mean, I assume the secret service just follows him wherever he is <laughs> on the property, you know, like. They're, they're paid to be careful, you know. They're, they're going to overprotect rather than underprotect. It's, it's just sort of like an entirely, it's a, it's a vignette in a vacuum is this yeah. opening set. It's so. fine as like a scene of entertainment. It's fine. And then it's just, it's just kind of empty calories in TV terms, essentially. <laughs> um, just kind of a meaningless cold open. And usually the cold opens on this show aren't entirely meaningless, even if yeah. they have nothing to do with the plot. They're usually thematically linked in some mm-hmm. way. And I guess the only theme here is that him and Toby yell at each other, which they will continue to do throughout the episode. Yeah. Uh, you have here the opening interaction with Donna and Josh is insufferable. You want to go into that? It's just Josh condescending to Donna and Donna like sort of giving it uh, back to about her. About what? Not really. About, um, about specifically her dating life, which is a great <laughs> thing to talk about in the office between a subordinate and their superior. Absolutely. I think he uses some phrase 
like it's some equivalent phrase to like well those dozens of mooks that you bring home to your bed local gomers is what he says which is actually pretty funny and and fair but like like, yes gross (laughs) this is not a topic that should be at the office josh on his dating life uh, but of course, that will get worse throughout the show as their relationship continues to uh, spiral. Uh, so, then we get to the first of our big block of cheese meetings, which is uh, Sam gets called out. Uh, or sorry, I'm I'm jumping ahead a bit here. First off, we have a uh, staff meeting, mm-hmm. and during the staff meeting, there's two main topics of discussion. One being uh, Hollywood, uh, and then the other being uh, the economy. Mm-hmm. These are the, so, these are kind of the, um, your token issues for the episode that will kind of swirl around and in and out of the theme of the big block of cheese. Day. Right. But never actually be truly kind of del- delved into. So neither will we really, but, uh, so then we get to, okay. Josh then gets handed a card with instructions on where to go in the event of a nuclear attack. Uh, and he's like, okay, so what about my staff? And like the NSC guy has to say without saying, like, your staff doesn't get to go with you to the bunker. <laughs> and and it's this big awkward moment. Uh, and it turns out Josh has like super survivor's guilt about this. And that's that's played out kind of throughout the episode. Yeah. Uh, okay. So then the uh, then we have the president in this economic meeting, and it's very weird where. First off, I don't know who they're meeting with. I forget. I don't know who the old lady who's impressed by the fact that the president can recall two numbers. (laughs) I don't know who she's representing. I assume it's meant to be some sort of, like, labor board or something. I don't know. Or some sort of government accounting office or what have you. I don't think they elaborate. It's just a a smash cut to him in this meeting. Right. But the meeting is about that they have a budget surplus and what do they want to do with it, Um, which is also something that comes up in our big block of cheese meetings because... Some of these are about people who are proposing ideas for what to do with the budget surplus. Uh, the president, uh, like I said, recalls two numbers. Two uh, numbers. Two whole numbers. And the opposite. And the uh, the old lady is blown away by the fact that he is able to do <laughs> this Herculean task of I- intellect. And this is this is played throughout this kind of this portion of the episode where both during the like the prep for the press conference mm-hmm. and during this meeting like they refer to the president's command of numbers as like some sort of savant level understanding of economics and really it's like he answers a question with one technical term and two statistics like oh right it's it's bizarre it's you're the uh, king of the world (laughs) (laughs) it's this fetization of 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 intellect but not really intellect just neat parlor tricks, yeah, yes. and, but not even really that. More just basic human cognition, <laughs> um, arithmetic. <laughs> yeah. So the economic meeting doesn't really. Nothing really happens. Uh, the, that's the ultimate thing. Nothing actually happens in this episode. They don't pass a bill. Nothing like nothing advances the plot. It's just kind of a lot of discussion of various issues. So yeah. let's get then into the actual cheese meetings themselves, as I will call them. And there's really two big ones here. There's the first one, uh, which um, Sam is pulled out to talk to 
uh, amazing character actor Sam Lloyd, uh, a.k.a. Ted the Accountant from Scrubs. Uh, you've seen him in various other things as well. And he's here to tell Sam that a UFO has been spotted in the air. Yeah, and so it goes into this thing, and it's very, you know, it doesn't seem unreasonable outside of the framing of the fact that it's, oh my god, it's a UFO, because he's really talking about, he's like, you have radar systems set up on the West Coast to monitor this sort of thing. Subtext, maybe they should be, you know, funded to look for, I don't know, missiles. Right. Or whatever, and but he's—it's all couched in this thing where this guy's clearly a whack job because he's bald and he's got hair on his temples, and he's talking about UFOs. <laughs> and he's talking you know? about UFOs. Yeah. yeah, exactly that. And uh, so Sam dismisses his concern out of hand, and we get back to the business of the episode. Uh, then our second cheese meeting, and this one I really enjoy, uh, is the one where CJ talks to a group of wildlife lobbyists, I assume. Uh, who are pitching a wolf highway uh, for, for pl- what's her name, Plutie? Plutie. Plutie, thank you. Plutie the wolf. Yeah. Uh, well, and so, one, of them and is, one of them is Nick Offerman. Yes, one and... of them is Ron Swanson, a.k.a. <laughs> Nick, AKA yeah. Nick Offerman, which is hilarious because he's petitioning the government to spend money. <laughs> His, uh, if, if Ron Swanson could see him, he would be shocked and horrified. Yes, indeed. And so they they quote this number after kind of telling CJ about ecology and and stuff, and it's $900 million. Right. For a wolf highway. Right. And then, um, of course, CJ laughs. And of course it's ridiculous, because of course it's ridiculous. It's a wolf highway, you know. We have actual human highways that need work, like that one that collapsed in Miami a few months back. Yeah, exactly. Um, So obviously, you know... It's obvious, it's it's sort of a rhetorical device to be like, look at these lunatics, they want a wolf highway. But, like, environmental concerns that they bring up are real. And, like, the, while a wolf highway isn't the answer, you know, this idea of, like, oh, look at these dumb environmentalists <laughs> is, is very toxic. Yeah, well, and there, it's, it's kind of a, there are systemic ramifications of the things that these people are proposing, and now... Sure, you know, it may not be the best messenger for whatever issue you're trying to put out there, but the condescension is real in this. And it's like, oh, well, you know, this is the administration. We've clearly got better things to do. And right. the better things that they have Which to do they are like... Which they never do. Yeah, and the, like, the better things they have to do are, are sit around and bitch about prepping for a press conference. Right. Like, That's... are you babies? It's, yeah there's this implication that you know they're taking away extremely busy time that could be going towards better things but the better thing is just being around the president while he prepares for a press conference (laughs) it's very weird um so next the next major issue or one of the major issues i say that the episode tries to raise is the idea of hollywood and hollywood violence where uh, they're about to take a big donation check from this guy, fictional director Larry Posner, uh, who makes very violent and sexually uh, explicit, explicit movies, uh, clearly meant to be some sort of like Tarantino-esque figure. Well, Larry uh, Flint, who was in the actually in the news, I think 
Yeah, at it, this well, time, it's contemporarily, it's definitely not porn. He's making movies. Well, but, but it was it was they're porny that's, movies. Yeah, yeah. I guess. And it's also you know? it's a it's a it's a mashup of these culture war issues. Sure, absolutely. Uh, and so we get the argument about well, we can't take a donation from Hollywood and then come out and give a big speech about. Because then the other thing is they're they're playing a big speech about how Hollywood is bad and Hollywood <laughs> is throwing so many violent ideas into society and Hollywood is making society worse and all this kind of stuff. And first off, why are they giving this speech? They're Democrats. Like, why do they need to be the moral guardians <laughs> of America? That's what the Republicans are. Uh, and second off, uh, this idea that Hollywood makes the world violent is on its face absolutely ridiculous you know as we have more access to violent media now than ever before and yet violent crime has dropped decade over decade at a rapid rate yeah and we relitigate this issue every time it's constantly to invoke you know you've got constantly fucking tipper gore you've got you know the the, the war on video games. doom shit yeah you know? exactly like, every time every time yeah. well and, and i to be fair Throughout this episode, Toby, again, until he is abandoned by Aaron Sorkin, he Mm -hmm. is consistently my favorite character because he raises all these good issues about exactly what they're doing. And he comes in and just says they have like this this conversation. He actually upsets um, Leo to a certain Mm -hmm. degree. Like Leo interrupts him in a clip that I will play right here. Why not? Because Sam is right. It's not that Larry Posner's movies have gratuitous sex and gratuitous violence. It's that they suck. They're terrible. But people go to see them because they have gratuitous sex and gratuitous violence. Now, if we could just get people to stop going to see crappy movies, Posner would stop making them, I promise you. How's that strategy working for us in the war on drugs, sir? Toby. We are going to go out there and implore these people to step up to the plate and not be quite so casual with the awesome influence that they have, that's fantastic. But sir, every time someone makes headlines by blowing thunder at this ridiculous target, it only serves as a criminal distraction in the pursuit of actual solutions. And let me, let me just say one other thing. If I were an actor or a writer or a director or a, a, a producer in Hollywood, and someone were to start coming at me with lists of things that were American and un-American, I'd start to think that this was sounding eerily familiar. Do I look like Joe McCarthy to you, Toby? No, sir. Nobody ever looks like John McCarthy. That's how they get in the door in the first place. Where it's like, yep, exactly. He's got a spectacular point here. Like, yeah, he nailed it. You, you know, you if the censorship is extremely, extremely fraught with these threats of, well, if we do this one time, what's the precedent that we mm-hmm. set? And why is it even that? Uh, you know, he, he does a great job of kind of rhetorically straddling the line here, but why is it even important that we do this? Right. Absolutely. And it's, it's, weir- it's weird to see the president be like, well, the president's argument is that the movies are bad, and therefore it's okay to censor them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is just, wow. Okay. Wow. Um. Okay, so the <laughs> We wouldn't have the genius of the room under a, a, a Bartlett administration. <laughs> Tommy Bozo like, would have received a visit from the NSA in the middle of the night and died quietly of some sort of poisoning. <laughs> it had a polonium sandwich. Oh, like, so, let's, let's, let's censor all bad movies. 
Well, and so and speaking of a polonium sandwich, like we go through this arc of Josh's survivor guilt thing. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I wrote down this question. I said like this, and I, I answered it for myself eventually. This was pre-white powder. Correct. You know, um, he's concerned about, and CJ eventually ends up kind of backing him up on this in the episode is he's talking about smallpox coming back. He's talking about mm-hmm. bioweapons, you know, as bioterrorism. this. Bioterrorism. Yeah, as this alternative to the eventuality of the, the nuclear strike. Of real terrorism. Yeah, that, yes. they're, that they're giving him this card for. And so it's <laughs> it's just all this, like, this weird fear-mongering stuff that very, like, it, it places this of its time almost yeah. perfectly well to be to be fair i do think the episode frames it as him being extremely irrational given that he goes to therapy and and cj's advice of we'll just make more vaccine is sort of the end note to the big scene of like of course we will <laughs> yeah. like so i do think the episode frames him as being extremely irrational and and to be fair again it's a character it's... failing not a messaging failing of the episode yeah absolutely that was that was pretty much what i was going to say perfect yeah and then so after all this evolves and and nothing really happens we do we do get introduced to a new character oh but before that oh wait hang on sorry want, i want to talk ahead. about this the setup to the to the moment where we meet zoe uh, is that Zoe is coming into town, and therefore the president's making chili. And when, oh yeah, and when the staff has the reaction that you just had of like, <laughs> okay, stand. Uh, he then tells them all to look at the seal on the floor, look back up at him, and then re-react in a much more positive <laughs> method, manner. <laughs> Which, to be fair, I would probably do to my friends all the time if I was hey, the sure. president. Sure. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little actually, glimpse of the great, despotic president here. Yeah, it's a great little, it's a great little moment, and it is funny and cute and everything. But it's also just like this blatant thing of like, look at me, <laughs> I'm the president. Yeah. It feels very Trumpian. It feels yeah, like absolutely. Trump would absolutely make people do that. Um. So then, uh, now having set up that the president is making chili, uh, Zoe is, uh, his youngest daughter is there, uh, she's coming into town, she just graduated high school, she's going to Georgetown University, uh, and they're throwing a big party for her, and during this party, we get the other half of the episode title, so the first half, crackpots, referring to the cheese day, uh, guests, and these women, uh, referring to this lovely speech uh, <sighs> given to describe the women. Uh, and I'll note here that the camera cuts to all of them, and you can't hear what the women are saying. You just hear the men describing them. <sighs> do we want to do a separate segment on this? Do we want to yeah, stop briefly? We're going long here. Okay, uh, yeah, no, I'm just saying. So good <laughs> the sight of colleagues enjoying each other outside work. So what were you guys talking about? We were talking about these women. Yeah. We can't get over these women. Okay. So, after that speech, uh, let's just... Let me just break this whole thing down a little. It's it's this really weird type of, like... And it's very Sorkin, and I've seen it throughout his work, in particular in The West Wing, but also in Sports Night. And I recently watched This American President for this first time, and you see it a bit in there, too. And it's this idea that these are great men, you know, the, the historical type of great men, you know, the Alexanders, the greats, the, you know, the, the emperors of Rome, you know, these are great men 
who have great women by their side, but always in a secondary role. And, and that's the limit of where women can go, according to Sorkin. You can be a great woman to a great man. And it's just this, it's this weird sort of like faux, faux feminism that's where these men just go look at all these women and go, wow, look at all these amazing, and there's a very implied and attractive <laughs> women that, that work with us. Aren't they great uh, without actually like fighting for equal pay or equal responsibilities and respect or equal representation? Well, yeah, and the, the, the setup of the scene is such that it's almost like you can imagine like... Uh, the president up on a parapet, like surveying his kingdom and being mm-hmm. like, "It's good to have women." Like, yeah, it's it's a it's it's good to be the king. Speech, yeah, like, it, yeah. absolutely, you nailed it. Um, there's also a weird bit here where Bartlett makes a big speech about how he proud he is of Zoe, which is fine, uh, but then he says she's off to Georgetown and a life of celibacy. <laughs> Which is just, again, the weird thing of, like, don't anyone fuck my daughter. so fucking gross. Like, (laughs) oh my god. This, this, the paternal clampdown of, which, of course, funny knowing where the show is going with, with, uh, with, um, Charlie and her. Well, and it's very, uh... That he's the one who basically created the situation where, to ensure she would not be celibate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's the other thing. It's like I wrote a note here. I was like, I think I said in my note on my notepad here, it says, shut the fuck up, Josh. Where it's like you're basically just setting them up. For, like, <laughs> oh, you, yeah. You're putting them together in this situation where it's like, well, yeah. dad's not going to be happy here. Which, you know, frankly, is, is great. Like, that's fine. Way to go, Josh. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's this weird... I don't know. It's a it's a weird take on 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 a it's a man's take on like what he thinks you know women's role should be, and it's very eye opening from sort of a Sorkin's mentality of what he think what he thinks sort of the natural order of things is. Absolutely, it, it sort of rolls up a lot of um, like the concepts of nobility into mm-hmm. it too, where it's like oh, oh nobility and chivalry. Right. Um, it and, all know, comes out. Noblesse oblige. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. We're, we're obligated to be great men because we have such great things <laughs> it's, it's very, yeah. very very gross so th- that wraps up the episode so now let's we'll break down into a couple of the topics of discussion after this recap hell yeah so i wanted to take a second to kind of i mean this is the first time it comes up in the series in a in a big way i mean it's obliquely mentioned in the first four episodes but uh, this is the first time that we really get to feel the brunt of the neoliberal perspective on <laughs> government budgeting here because yeah. they're talking about a surplus and right. they're talking about taxes and they're talking about only having that much money to spend. And right. like, you know, our audience probably is already on the train <laughs> I would hope that most most listeners are familiar, <laughs> are familiar with where with, we're going with this. Where we're going with this, where we and can that talk. Deficit spending is a good thing, <laughs> and, and we could even like kind of bring up just the the fact that you know with, with the way that the fiat currency and the default currency of the entire planet is the U.S. U.S. dollar, mm-hmm. we can basically just wield fiscal and monetary policy entirely separate. 
right from one another. So ultimately, this comes down to the typical framing of this, which is the most anti-intellectual and worst example, which is the government budget functions just like your house's budget. Yeah. You know, it takes in X amount of money, and it has to spend less than X amount of money, or else it's broke. And I think one of the things that is never... It's super weird because forever this has been the case where they use the concept of a budget surplus as a cudgel when it's convenient, i.e. when you're not achieving it, but then it is completely elated from any discussion, any media coverage, any really, and, and at this point in time prior to the internet, you know, being widely available, it's like any really popular awareness of a budget surplus just did not exist. And so it's when it occurs, as it did under Bill Clinton, it just sort of vanishes into the ether. It's like, right. oh, great, the government turned a profit, and okay, next year, go. Right, right, and we're gonna and we're gonna blow it on whatever. Well, I don't, I don't, and I don't, and like, the I problem think it's is even they don't even that. blow it on whatever. Yeah, I think it's even. I worse meant than more that. blow it in the sense of it will be gone for no reason. <laughs> yes, we, <laughs> not, we know not now. Not to get spent. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's a very, uh, it's a very U.S. Army like, uh, it's like a procurement way of looking right. at things. Like if you don't, if you don't shoot all your bullets, you're not going to get that many bullets allotted exactly. to you next time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, like this is, and this will be a repeated theme going forward. We don't yeah, need this, to dwell too much on it. But. Yeah, we don't have to dwell on a lot because economics is going to come up throughout. But you, you raise the fact that this. It, actually did happen under bill clinton and uh i you know not being that politically aware at the time because i was about you know eight nine or whatever um but uh, coming to it under an understanding of from what i was taught in economics and in college and high school particularly in college which i had a great professor who was thankful enough to explain to us why the national debt is complete bullshit and that you shouldn't be scared of it. And every time someone tries to tell you that you owe X thousand of the of the U.S. national debt, that you should uh, laugh in their face. Yeah. Because that's the world's most disingenuous framing of how the national debt works. As soon as we don't have to pay off the national debt. Frankly, I hope everyone listening knows this. And anybody who engages you and mentions the national debt in any shape or form, just turn your brain off. Just. Yeah. Put, no put one your, knows what they're talking about. Put your idiot suffering face on, grab another beer, and get and buckle in. Because I think, holy I think shit. the best disarming question, if if someone starts bringing up debt concerns, is just go, who's going to collect the debt? And how are they going to collect it? <laughs> because that, that, no one's been able to answer that one for me. <laughs> Have somebody like end up spluttering about like China starting a nuclear war. <laughs> one of my friends did do that once, essentially. is like, China's going to come get it. They're going to invade. I'm like, China owns like 10% of the debt. You actually think they're going to invade? And like, I don't even think it's not even. Plus, again, their economy relies on that debt to function. And, it, and it's not even like, the, the 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 terms themselves are foreign to people's understanding mm -hmm. of of quote unquote budgeting because it is right. Completely again, no abstracted. household can print their own money. Yeah. So ultimately, anyone who tries to compare it to a household budget is you've you've lost before you've gotten there. Yeah, and that this will be a recurring theme in the series and i think at this point we can just transition right into the next thing um which is the treatment of the big block of cheese day players correct and their desire to be included in 
the you know the the budgetary in the scheme in within in the, the government, government frankly yeah. to be and and to a certain degree you could argue that having their concerns either be funded or be considered is representation exactly for so exactly. this is this is a legitimate concern and function of the government is if i if i and a group of fellow citizens petition the government for redress or relief in some way mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there needs to be a compelling argument to be made to spend the money, but at the same time, I am almost, to a certain degree, entitled to my concerns being taken seriously. To be treated fairly, exactly. Absolutely. If nothing and, else. And, and to be represented, you know, particularly by this my specific... This is literally specific... what representation means. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> groups of concerned citizens coming to the government <laughs> saying, here's a problem that we group have formed to discuss with you because we see it as a problem. That's literally what representation means. That's what you're paying for with your taxation. So I, I wrote up a lot of words on this, but to, to lead into this, it's basically like there is a scene where there's a brief scene that we mentioned earlier where the president is sitting with a room full of economists and basically it's like, oh, oh my God, like a couple numbers. Mm-hmm. He, he can do arithmetic in his head. Holy shit. Like, right. oh my God. But it runs straight up against the generic American conceit of being like, well, we'll have these ideas and then just leave it to the eggheads in the lab to figure this out. Mm-hmm. But, but then you spend this entire episode like shit talking and condescending to the fucking eggheads. Right. Because they're crazy eggheads this time. <laughs> oh yeah, like, these, these aren't our eggheads. Right. They're straw man. <laughs> they're straw man crazy. You yeah. know, where they're bringing they're bringing up concerns that are founded on real concerns, but they're doing it in such a straw man crazy way that it makes them easy to dismiss. And the problem with this as a rhetorical argument and as a television thing is that it lets the viewer get into the idea of, oh, well then any alternative ideas are crazy and crackpot and easy to dismiss. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a bad place to be in where then only the status quo and never ch- nothing ever changes because everything else is a new idea. So I got real angry about this today because uh, my parents live in North Carolina outside of Wilmington where, you know, Hurricane Florence is currently in the process of washing an entire 50-mile-wide swath of the countryside into the ocean. Yeah, here. jeez. <laughs> and the, the problem with kind of this the Hollywoodization of this phenomenon here is that it's dangerous culturally. Um, And you can see it play out in real time here because humans are already sort of predisposed to think very individually instead of on a, like a consequential or ecosystemic systemic uh, level. Exactly. And so, and this is like, in spite of the fact that it's been demonstrated that like externalities and shit start to pop up so, so quickly in counterintuitive ways and particularly like altruistic or non-selfish ways as soon as you're organizing any group of people larger than like a fucking Elks Hall meeting you know mm-hmm. so it, it plays itself out with the frankly this crackpots plot line happens every goddamn year when they're talking about like um, the NIH grants or right whatever. and studies you know exactly. why why are we studying the life of a fruit fly you mm-hmm. know all this kind of BS scaremongering that gets done about gover- wasteful government spending. Yeah, and where they don't have, and it's totally fine that people don't have the perspective necessary to understand why it's important, 
but right, they also they think they think why does what is the life of a fruit fly going to help me? You well, know, yeah. how does that help my life? And this is this is totally understandable, and it is also something that is difficult to, I guess, inculcate on a cultural level because, yeah. you know. When you're too busy working three minimum wage jobs trying to, you know, feed your family, you don't give a shit about zebra farts or mm-hmm. why people eat mud or mm-hmm. whatever. And But then it raises another second order problem because all of those sort of random bits and pieces that have been assembled into this giant, some may say, hulking, shambling monstrosity of a government people have not been alive long enough and they don't live long enough to recall a time period during which the current status quo as it stands did not exist at all. Right. All yes. of this all of this stuff came to fruition after World War II, the before which and before frankly before the labor movement kicked off in a real form in the 20s and 30s in this country, all of which it did not exist. So you have a you have two methods of action acting on people's um, perspective in this regard. Like it's this presumption of normalcy, because at best they are just totally ignorant and at worst willfully ignorant mm-hmm. of sort of the advancements and the systems that the government has put in place since World War II. And then you couple that with the fact that it doesn't serve their self interest in the moment. Right. And the uh, the other thing of it is no one no one is viewing these things as jobs that are being created. You know, every researcher that's being funded is a job. You know, every study being done is a job for some science major out there. You know, all of these are jobs, and people always assume that the government can't create jobs, but the government is a giant employer. I think it's the and biggest all, employer. All of the all of these things do nothing but funnel money into the local economies where these researchers are working as they spend their money on, you know, the necessities of life. Yeah, and, you know, it's, um, you know, I was trying to come up with a metaphor for this, where it's like, you know, the average person is, is say, spends their time and, and creates their life. It's like they're painting a painting, but all they know about is how to paint a painting. They don't know where the canvas came from. They don't know how to build an easel. They just assume that, it's, that it all exists. Yeah, it was all there. It was all there. It was all there already. So why do I need to give a shit about it? And, like, for my personal anecdote here, today, you know, my parents mercifully were, had driven across the country to visit family because they're insane. Yeah, Um, uh, I had to bunker (laughs) down during Hurricane Irma uh, as both myself and my mom were in evacuation zones. Yeah, and so... That was fun. Today I was looking to make sure, you know, just out of curiosity to maybe see what the flood stage was like or what it looked like down at my parents' house or, you know, whether it had been washed away in this fucking tidal wave of pig shit. Um, If you go to the NOAA website, which is the um, government's basically weather service, Mm -hmm. you can find a Google map of the country where you can click on thousands, literal thousands of individual little flood gauges on these rivers to see where they're at, in terms of, you know, what the height of their flow is, how fast it's flowing, and it's charted by time. And they also develop projections for this going into the future. And what I noticed today was, you know, I have a public health background and a lot of hydrogeology under my belt. So what I noticed today is that in addition to, like, 
hey, River X is at 28 feet, which is a major flood stage. Not yeah. only that, the USGS has gone to the length of supplementing the quantitative units, 27, 28, 29 feet or whatever, with qualitative descriptions of what certain levels mean. And it goes down to like, hey, at this flood gauge, at 30 feet major flood stage, this means that Route 27 on the West Riverbank is at serious risk of washing out as floodwaters might inundate a retaining pond across the road. It is somebody who was employed and given money to write up fucking <laughs> fucking prolix mm-hmm. descriptions of what's going on around these flood gauges. Mm-hmm. And that information is what connects that data to meaningful actions and policy. So it is mm-hmm. the public health connection that happens there. And I asked myself at that point in time, hey, does this sound fucking familiar? And frankly, when I was thinking about it, you can be fucking goddamn sure that someone with a grant proposal for, hey, we need to fund 20 scientists writing the, like, embarrassing... on on exact (laughs) flood conditions at specific inch intervals. Yeah, and they would have been laughed out of the big block of cheese day by shitheads like Sam Seaborn. Right, and ultimately, so that's... Here's here's the driving point of all of this. The the whole point, because there's a second big block of cheese day we're going to get to later on in this show, and the whole point of both of these episodes is like, boy, there sure are some wackos out there, but hey, if you listen to them, you can pick up some interesting facts. Uh, as we see in CJ in the last scene is just reciting wolf facts because <laughs> the wolf people have given her all these facts about wolves, uh, but then they don't do anything about it like okay so cj knows wolf facts now but they're not going to press any sort of policy that is going to like help wolves or even make it like nicer for ranchers and wolves or something like that they don't do anything with it other than cj learned something today and the 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 treatment of it as trivia is fucking garbage because again the the difference between that paragraph description being there and not results in things like Oh, uh, uh, you know, there was a railroad built on a sand berm near the Cape Fear River, and there was a coal train of 100 cars going through from CSX, and oh, it just, you know, it just derailed itself, and there are these horrifying pictures mm-hmm. of, like, the engine piled up with all these boxcars behind it, and it's like, hmm, the reason that we do this is to support and sustain the system of continued existence mm-hmm. for things like this, which is right. just, it does not boil down to being like, did you know wolves eat prairie dogs? <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's just, it, it all comes down to this idea that like research is something that you know what you exactly where you're going to pour into it and exactly what you're going to get out of it. And, you know, or that systems in general are like that and that's not how they work. But if we, you know, you can build, you know, all of these things interconnect in a way to get the information where it needs to be to actually help people. And, you know, like you said, these kind of proposals would be laughed out of the room as crackpots on Big Block of Cheese Day. All right. Thank you for tuning in again to a somewhat polemic episode of The Worst Wing. Oh, boy, did I get angry on this <laughs> oh, one. Oh, <laughs> man, I was sitting fuming at my PC all day. <laughs> oh, man. The last one was kind of a nothing burger, but this one had plenty in there to, to bite and chew at. Uh, so our next episode, 
which will be episode six, is Mr. Willis of Ohio, uh, which refers to a social studies teacher who comes to the White House to take over for his wife, who is a congresswoman who has unfortunately passed away. Perfect. Sounds like a thrilling we, theme. Yeah, and we'll explore that next week. Uh, and we thank you again for listening. We welcome your thoughts, feedback, posts in the thread. And uh, we'll see you next time on The Worst Wing Podcast. Adios. Send all the money Bye. you ask for, but don't ask me to come on.